The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I've been wanting to redo the study that I've done back in 97 on Matthew 24. Just because I wanted to get it on video, I've had some requests for that. And also because I want to add to it my recent understanding of the Divine Council viewpoint. And after Bob Cruikshank's message at the conference, it really motivated me, yeah, we need to redo Matthew 24 because there's some really important stuff that's missing. So today, we're going to look at an introduction to the Olivet Discourse. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I thought we were doing 1 John. We are. Next week we're getting back to 1 John. Then periodically, I'll throw in a thing on Matthew 24, you know, and just, you can put it all together at the end and listen to the whole thing if you want to, but it'll be random whenever I throw one in there, and we'll go through Matthew 24, and if I finish 1 John, um, (laughs) when I finish 1 John, then if we still have Matthew 24 left, maybe we'll just wrap it up then, but. Matthew 24 is known as the Olivet Discourse. Yeshua preached this sermon, the Bible says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, we think of the Sermon on the Mount as being Matthew 5 through 7, but this is also a Sermon on the Mount. Few chapters in the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels, which are Mark 13 and Luke 21. This is kind of a battleground over when's the Lord going to return? You know, most people are looking for something happening in the future. I think Matthew 24 makes it very clear that this happened in the past. Now, before we begin our study of chapter 24, we really need to examine the context. You know, because we haven't worked through Matthew to get to 24, uh, context is king. And apart from understanding the context, you're going to come up with some weird ideas maybe on this text. So I want to begin with... uh, kind of going through Matthew and pointing out some things that are important to understand before you come to Matthew 24. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are usually known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic comes from two Greek words which mean to see together or literally means to to be seen and be able to be seen together. Now, the reason for that name is this. These three gospels each give an account of the same events of Yeshua's life. But in each of them, there are additions and omissions. But broadly speaking, the material is the same and the arrangement is the same. It's therefore possible to set them down in parallel columns and compare them one to another. And we'll do that through this study in Matthew 24. We'll do it a little bit today. Matthew was the Gospel that was written for the Jews. I think that's also very important. It was written by a Jew, Matthew, in order to convince Jews, other Jews, fellow Jews, that Yeshua was in fact the Messiah. One of the great objects of Matthew is to demonstrate that all the prophecies in the Tanakh are fulfilled in Yeshua. And that therefore, He must be the promised Messiah. It has one phrase that runs through it like a ever-recurring theme, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets. Now that phrase in various forms occurs in the Gospel as often as ten times. So one thing you understand when you're reading Matthew is you, if you haven't read the Tanakh, the Old Testament, if you haven't read that, you're missing something. You can't start in the New Testament. Alright? Because you just missed out on 39 books that give us background into this book. So, you know, people usually become Christians, start reading their Bible, and they start with Matthew. Well, I would suggest you start with John. Then once you read John, then you go back and you start at Genesis and just read through and understand, because over and over, Matthew says, hey, this is what was prophesied. This is what he said was going to happen. This is just like he said. And he's talking to Jews, and these Jews are familiar with the Tanakh. So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know this stuff. Let's start at the beginning, just kind of work through some of these. Yeshua's birth and Yeshua's name are fulfillment of prophecy. We see that in Matthew 1, 21 through 23. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoke, the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So his birth, his name was prophesied. Again, if you start in Matthew, you're missing something. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, how many of you know where I'm going to say next? Okay, okay. let's talk about Yeshua here, all right? In your Bible, it says Jesus. Let me tell you, Mary never called her baby Jesus. Never. Never. Okay? (laughs) She never did, all right? And she never called him by the Greek name Jesus, okay? Because Mary didn't speak Greek. She didn't speak English. What did she speak? Hebrew, okay? Our Savior's name when he walked this earth was Yeshua. Matthew 1 1 through 16 makes it clear that he came from Hebrew descent through the tribe of Judah. In other words, Yeshua was Jewish. He was born to and raised by Jewish parents who raised Him under Jewish culture. He spoke Hebrew. Yeshua is the name that all the apostles would have known Him by. It's the name His mother would have called Him. When you get to heaven, you you tell one of the apostles up there, hey, I can't wait to see Jesus. They'll say, who? Who's that? They never heard that name before. Now, I've said this before, the J never came about until the 17th century, so no one spoke any using words using a J until the 17th century. Now, it says they're going to call His name Yeshua, for He will save His people from their sins. The word for here is the conjunction gar in the Greek, which is explanatory. It's giving the reason why He is called Yeshua. It is because, so we could translate Gar as because. You shall call His name Yeshua because He will save His people from their sins. See, that's because Yeshua literally means Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. Mary was to call her son Yahweh's salvation. The angel's words make it plain that this son will be the promised Messiah. The fulfillment of God's promise to David centuries before. Every time Mary spoke Yeshua's name, every time she called Him, every time she heard His name, she would be saying, Yahweh's salvation. Because this man came to die to save His people from their sins. He was Yahweh's salvation. Because He was Yahweh in human form, He was Emmanuel. He was God become man with us to die for man. So, his name was prophesied. His birth was prophesied. His flight to Egypt was prophesied. And see, to the Jews, they're they're hearing all this stuff about Yeshua, the man they rejected. Everything about this man was foretold by God in their book, the Torah. And in the Tanakh. So, they had knew this. He said, the flight to Egypt was prophesied. Matthew 2, 14-15. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now Matthew is quoting here from Hosea. Now what's interesting here, and we learn some stuff by this, when we study this text in context in Hosea, we find that Hosea is referring to the Exodus that's described in the book of Exodus. But Matthew applies Hosea 11.1 to Yeshua as a youth returning to Judea from Egypt. The reference doesn't seem in keeping with the intention of Hosea. But here we have to remember when the New Testament writers give you an explanation on an Old Testament text, their writing is, there is inspired. All right? Their writing is inspired. And as we read Scripture in the context of the Bible as a whole, we see that he has made an analogy. God is making a comparison here between Israel as a nation and God's Son, Israel as a nation being freed from Egypt and God's Son moving from Egypt back. 
See, we look at Hosea there, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And yet, Yeshua, God's son coming up from Egypt, is a pattern that runs all through the Gospel. See, this is Exodus typology, where Yeshua, he's trying to tell us, Yeshua is the new Israel. He is the true Israel. He is the faithful Israel. And if we are in Christ, we are Israelites. Children of promise. Because Christ is the true Israel. Just like Israel is brought out of Egypt, the true Israel, the faithful Israel, is brought out of Egypt. Herod's slaughter of all the young children in an attempt to kill Yeshua was also prophesied. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah talked about this. This was a prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this slaughtering of these children was prophesied. The Jews should have been aware of this. Joseph's settlement in Nazareth and Yeshua's upbringing there was also prophesied. Matthew 2.23 And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Yeshua's healing of their sicknesses was prophesied. Matthew 8, 16 and 17. That evening, they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons. And He cast out the spirits with the Word, and He healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. The triumphal entry of Israel's Messiah, Yeshua, into the city was prophesied in Matthew 21, 3-5. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, a burden. Yeshua's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver was prophesied. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, who was the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. So it is Matthew's primary purpose to show that the prophecies in the Tanakh that the Jews should have known received their fulfillment in Yeshua. How every detail of Yeshua's life was foreshadowed in the prophets, and thus to compel the Jews to admit that Yeshua is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. The Jews knew well the teaching of the Tanakh, that Messiah would bring in the promised kingdom of heaven. Now, Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Meshach, meaning anointed one. That was translated into Greek as Christos, and into English as Christ. They viewed Messiah as a warrior prince. This is what the Jews thought. When they thought of Messiah, he was a warrior prince. He would expel the hated Romans. He would free the Jews from the bondage of Rome and would lead them to to world dominion. That's what they thought of their Messiah. Through the course of Yeshua's ministry, one in which He sought to wean the disciples from that whole idea of warrior Messiah, Yeshua tried to instill in them the prospect that the road to future glory was bound to run through the cross with its experience of rejection, suffering, and humiliation. Yeshua taught them that His kingdom was not of that world. It was not a physical kingdom. It was a spiritual one. He taught them that over and over, but they didn't get it. And guess what today? Most Christians still don't get it. They're still looking for that physical kingdom to be set up. Look at John 18.36. Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. He says, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now, 
This is a second-class conditional sentence which is called contrary to fact, and it could be translated this way. If my kingdom were of this world, and it's not, then my servants would be fighting, which they're not. See, Yeshua is a king, and he has a kingdom, but his kingdom is not the type of kingdom that's going to compete with Caesar's kingdom by waging war against it. Yeshua is no political revolutionary. His kingdom is not of this world. He is saying in very plain words that his kingdom is not a physical, geographical kingdom. His kingdom is spiritual. It is otherworldly. It is not of this physical realm. Look what he says in Luke 17, 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not physical. You're not going to see it being set up on earth. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now let me ask you, people, could words be much plainer? Yeshua taught that His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Yet despite the clear teaching of Yeshua, many today are looking, hoping for a physical kingdom. They can't wait for this physical kingdom to be set up. It's going to be set up on earth and the Lord's going to reign on earth. His kingdom, people, is here now. The sad thing is to hope for something you already have, you know? Can't wait till I get that. You got it, you're just not enjoying it. This this spiritual kingdom was consummated in AD 70. It's not physical fleshly. It didn't come with observation. It's in the midst of us. Now, Matthew teaches us much about the kingdom of heaven. 32 times in Matthew's gospel, Yeshua talks about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's dominating idea is that of Yeshua as the Messiah and the King of Israel. Yeshua spoke Hebrew. All right, now I'll argue that probably till my death, unless the Lord gives me new revelation. But listen, the Hebrew language of the Hebrew people was sacred. They believed God gave it to them. All right? It was literally what God used to create the world, and it was very important to the Hebrew people. So I just don't see Yeshua reaching his people, the Jewish people, by talking to them in Greek or Aramaic or whatever else. And I think a lot of the New Testament may have been written in Hebrew. Of course, I can't prove that. But I'll tell you, you read it and you see Hebrew idioms all through there, and you're like, how does the Greek writing have these Hebrew idioms in it? Maybe Yeshua spoke it in Hebrew. Maybe they put it in Greek when they wrote it down. That's a possibility when they translated it. But Yeshua's sermons, Yeshua's parables were, are, are in Greek, are written in Greek now. So Matthew, Luke, John translated Yeshua's words as kingdom of God. Matthew sometimes used this phrase too, but he often translates it kingdom of heaven. The two phrases are exactly the same thing because the translations of this, they're translations of the same Hebrew words. Now, what did Yeshua mean when he spoke of the kingdom of God? He meant, quite simply, the rule of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, God's reign. And Matthew emphasizes the coming kingdom and the judgment of all who reject it. Right at the beginning, there is John the Baptist called to repentance, and John warns of judgment. So as soon as they begin this gospel, which is written to Jewish people, they start warning these Jewish people about judgment. If you reject this Messiah, if you reject Yeshua, judgment is coming on you people. Look what John said in Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's it's really close. You need to turn from your sins, Israel. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Again, this is prophesied through the Tanakh. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the emergence of John was like a sudden sounding voice of God. People, it had been 400 years since Israel had a prophet. And now John's on the scene and they're like, oh, we're hearing from God. The Jews believed that Elijah would return before Messiah came. And that he would be heralded of the coming kingdom. 
and evidence that the judgment was drawing nigh. So they kind of look for Elijah. They said, when we see Elijah, we know something's happening. Well, look at Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now they're thinking, okay, this is Elijah. Bless you. And, yet, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Okay, that's speaking of judgment, people. Malachi 4.5 Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. Now, John shows up and John wears a garment of camel's hair. He's got a leather belt around his waist. That's the very description of the raiment which Elijah wore in 2 Kings 1-1-8. So again, if they know their Bible, they're saying, oh, John, he looks like a lot like Elijah. John's message was one of repentance or judgment. Now, had they known their Bibles, which they did, they should have recognized him. Matthew 3, 7-12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Now listen, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are also the political power. They're the ones in charge. And look, at John's really politically correct, okay? He didn't tweet this because they didn't tweet at the time, but he just said to them, you brood of vipers! That's how he welcomes the religious leaders. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John. John says, I baptize with water. But he who is coming after me, speaking of Christ, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, and fire. Now, the Holy Spirit is Pentecost. Fire is AD 70. Okay? Judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, verse 12 is a prophecy. It's speaking of AD 70 and God's destruction of Jerusalem. He's warning the Jews, you're going to be judged if you don't trust in Christ as Messiah. Matthew 4.33, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Here comes this man who claims to be the Jewish Messiah. And he's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing all this stuff. That should have put her, made it pretty clear who he was. Because the promised Messiah of Israel was to do those things. Isaiah 35 foretold that he would open the eyes of the blind. He would open the ears of the deaf. He would raise the dead. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb shall speak. They all knew all this. And here's the guy doing it. And they're like, nah, he's not the one. I mean, it's so clear they were blinded. They were blinded. When John was in prison, he began to doubt who Yeshua was. And so he sends his disciples to ask if he's the one that should come. Well, Yeshua said his work should make it evident that he was Messiah. And Yeshua answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. All right? That... You know, guys, John, that should settle it for you, okay? The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Yeshua warns those who reject Him as Messiah and His kingdom will suffer judgment. Matthew 8, 11, and 12. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here Yeshua uses a famous and vivid Jewish picture 
the Jews believe when Messiah came, they're going to have a great banquet. And all the Jews would sit down and feast together. So the Jews looked forward with all their hearts to the Messianic banquet, but it never for a second crossed their minds that a Gentile would sit down and eat with them. And here Yeshua is saying that many are going to come from the east and the west and sit at the table of the banquet, but still worse, he says, many of the sons of the kingdom are going to be shut out. The Jews had to learn that the passport into God's presence is not membership of any nation. It is faith in Yeshua that makes you a true Jew. He says, there will, that play, they're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People say, oh, that's hell. That's not hell, okay? That's judgment. 80, 70 judgment. Their nation is going to be burned to the ground. Their temple is going to be burned to the ground. So Yeshua continually warned the Jews of their coming judgment because of their apostasy. And I believe that most, if not all, of the parables deal with the kingdom of God or the destruction of Jerusalem because of the rejection of that kingdom. As we move closer to chapter 24, notice the building of the judgment theme. I mean, it just keeps getting stronger as we get closer because Matthew 24 is all about judgment. It's all about judgment of Jerusalem. Not anything else. Not the end of the world. You know, not the earth. It's judgment on Jerusalem. He's building towards that theme. That's why this context is so important. Warning Jewish people who live in Jerusalem. Look what he says in Matthew 21, 33-44, this parable here. Here's another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Now, who's the vineyard? Israel. They knew this. Isaiah chapter 5 is all about God's vineyard Israel, and they knew that. So they know right away they hear the vineyard, that's us. He planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it out to tenants. And went into another country, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get their fruit. These are the prophets coming to Israel. And the tenants took his servants, and they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So he keeps sending them prophets, and what do they do? They're killing the prophets, they're beating the prophets. Now we want to hear about that, all right? Finally, he sends his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Does that resemble anything? You get in the picture here of the parable? When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now watch. They said to him, or the Jews that he's talking to, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out their vineyard to other tenants. Yeah, you got it right. That's exactly what he's going to do. Who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Yeshua said to them, have you never read the Scriptures? He's talking to religious leaders. He he goes, you guys ever read the Bible at all? Because you don't seem to be getting this. The stone that the builders rejected, Psalm 118, has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them. He's telling the Jews this. Now keep verse 43 in mind because it relates to the prophecy of Yeshua in Matthew 24, the kingdom being taken from the Jewish people. Yeshua had clearly prophesied that the kingdom of God is going to be taken from them, it's going to be given to another nation. Listen to what God said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord Yahweh will put you to death. But my servants he will call by another name. I'm going to end up putting you people to death, and I'm going to call somebody else, another servant, and they'll be called by your name. Now let's continue on in Matthew as we move towards chapter 24. 22, 1-7. through Again, Yeshua spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he set his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. 
But they wouldn't come. So the prophets are going out and they're calling Israel to come back to God, but they're just not listening. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's a call to them to repent, come back to God. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Wow. Looking back, you say, yeah, we saw that happen, okay? It is clear that the reference here is to Jerusalem. Its destruction in AD 70 is clearly predicted here. Now let's look at chapter 23. In this chapter, Yeshua pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Again, the religious leaders of the day, okay? The, the people who were you know, supposed to be running things, supposed to be the people of God, you know, teaching the people of God, representing God to the people. In verse 13 through 26 of this chapter, they formed the most terrible of all the discourses ever delivered to mortals. It was pronounced in the temple, in the presence of multitudes. All these people are sitting around and they're hearing Yeshua attack the religious leaders. This was the last of the Lord's public discourse and it's a really impressive summary of all that He ever said or they had to say, about a wicked and a hypocritical generation. The Greek word for woe is oi. And it's hard to translate it, for it includes not only wrath, but sorrow. So these woes can be contrasted to the Beatitudes. Those in Christ's spiritual kingdom will be blessed. Blessed are those. Blessed are those, he says. But these who reject are damned. Woe to you! Yeshua the Messiah here is pronouncing judgment. You serpents! Hey, sounds like John the Baptist. This is Yeshua, okay? Gentle Yeshua, right? Everybody has this picture of him. He's just this nice guy, puts up with everything. Talking to religious leaders, and again, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now again, hell is a bad translation. This is the word Gehenna. All right, which was a reference to the Valley of Hinnom and the fiery judgment of God. Whenever Gehenna is used, it is to identify national judgment. It's a symbol of God judging a nation. So he's warning them, how are you going to escape being sentenced to a national judgment because you're turning away from me? So it's not a reference to eternal conscious torment. I don't believe in hell. Eternal conscious torment, I think that is a thing put in place to keep people in line, to scare people, to make people obey. I just don't think you see it in Scripture. It's a reference to the destruction at AD 70 here. He says, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So Yeshua's charge is that the history of Israel is the history of the murder of the men of God. He says that the righteous men from Abel to Zacharias were murdered. Everybody I sent you, everybody who was standing for me, witnessing, calling you to me, you killed. The story of Zacharias is found in 2 Chronicles 24. Zacharias rebuked the nation for their sin. He was a prophet. He stood up and rebuked them. And Joash stirred up the people to stone him to death in the very temple court. So he's speaking for God and they kill him. We don't want to hear that. Zacharias died saying, may the Lord see and avenge. Now in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is the first book, just like it is in ours. But unlike our order of books, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. All right? So we could say that the murder of Abel is the first in the Bible story. The murder of Zacharias is the last. So from the beginning to the end, the history of Israel is a rejection and often the slaughter of the men of God. Now notice whom their blood is to come upon. Upon you. Who's the you? He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here. All this blood's going to come upon you. In the first century, the ones Yeshua was then speaking to, 
You will see also Luke 11, 15, 51, he talks about this. Now, this is confirmed. I'm, I'm talking to you. This is going to come upon you. All right. The you is not you. Okay? You're not there. He's speaking this 2,000 years ago. I was getting a haircut yesterday, and the conversation came up about second coming of Christ. And I'm like, they asked me, so what do you believe? <laughs> I don't have that much time, but let me tell you, the Lord already returned. They're like, what? I said, Whenever he talks about coming in the Bible, there's always a time reference. Now, when you go back to read your Bible, read it like it was written 2,000 years ago, because that's when it was written. And 2,000 years ago, he said, I'm coming soon. And just put that in your mind when you read these things, and ask yourself, assume 2,000 years. It's, the Bible's not a newspaper. And when he says, so that on you, he's not talking about us. He's talking to his audience. And this is confirmed in the next verse. Truly, I say to you, all these things, all this judgment will come upon this generation. What generation is that? The one he's talking to. He tells them, you, I say to you, this generation, the one we're living in. Now, all commentaries that I've read agreed that this generation means the generation living. Which, yeah, that makes sense. But when they get to Matthew 24... They change their mind. This generation now means something else. Everywhere it's used, they say it's contemporary. Matthew 24, no, it's not contemporary. It's eisegesis, people. It's not exegesis. Yeshua says the Jewish people would be punished for the rejection of God's servants and the kingdom of God we've taken from them. And it's all going to happen, he says, in this generation, a generation with 40 years, biblically. All right? Matthew 23, 37, 38. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, by house here, he's referring to Jerusalem and certainly the temple. The word desolate is the Greek word Eremos, and it means waste, desert, desolate, solitary, wilderness. The city and the temple were both destroyed within a generation of when he spoke this in AD 70. That's history, people. You can study history and learn that the city, the temple was destroyed. That was it. That was the last time the Jews ever offered a sacrifice. So, to, you know, people say they're Jews today and they go to temple. They do nothing of what the biblical Jews did because they're not sacrificing. And sacrifice was the center of Judaism. Why? Because appointed to Christ. And that's why there's no sacrifices now. Christ already came. You don't need to point to Him unless you look backwards. They've reinvented Israel and, or Judaism and kept on going. All right? Matthew 23, 39, For I tell you, you will not see Me again until you say, Blessed. Is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So unless, you know, they turn to him, unless you realize who I am and turn to me, you're done. And what he means here is the week after the passion, Yeshua will not again publicly reveal himself to them. They're not going to see him anymore unless they acknowledge his Messiahship. Now, with all that in mind, now you've got a context, okay? Building to judgment the whole time. Building to judgment on the Jewish people for their sins against God because they were the people of God. It's not on anybody else, not on the world. It's not on the globe. It's not on America. We're talking to Jews. When we get to Matthew 24, that's the context. The Olivet Discourse. Now, this is one of the places where chapter and division is very detrimental, okay? God didn't put those chapter verses, chapter and verse in there. Men did. We need to ignore the break here and go right from 23 into 24 because he's saying, listen, blessed is he who comes. Unless you see who I am, unless you trust me as Messiah, judgment's coming. Then he goes right into talking about judgment in chapter 24. Yeshua left the temple. That's where he was teaching all this in front of the people. So these, listen, you know why they hated him so bad? He's putting them down. He's, call, he's cursing them in front of all the people that are supposed to be you know, respecting them. He left the temple. He's going away. And his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Mark puts it this way. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
Luke says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. So, the discussion that Yeshua had just had with the scribes and Pharisees takes place inside the temple, the temple grounds. Now as they depart from the temple, Haran is the word here, means temple complex, not the temple proper. The words of Yeshua, your house will be left you desolate, are burning in their ears. I mean, he just warned them, you're in trouble, your house is going to be desolate. So they point out the buildings of the temple and their magnificence. Mark says that they particularly pointed out the stones of the temple. What wonderful stones! What a beautiful building! You know, they got to be wondering to themselves, okay, you just talked about our house being desolate. What could possibly happen to such a massive edifice? This place was a fortress. There was nothing like the temple in the ancient world. There was such a reverence for the temple, even in distant parts, that one would scarcely dare imagine that anything could happen to this temple. Like I said, it was a fort. Let me give you just a little historical background on the temple. There were three temples historically. All right, Solomon, Zerubbabel, and Herod. The first temple was built by King Solomon a thousand and five years before Christ. First Kings 6 tells us that. He spent seven years building it. This temple remained until it was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar as a judgment of God for their sin. That happened 584 years before Christ, 2 Chronicles 36. After the Babylonian captivity, the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, but with vastly inferior diminished splendor. I mean, they looked on it and they cried because they said, it's just not what it used to be. This was called the second temple because it was the second temple. That makes sense, right? The temple was often defiled in wars before the time of Christ. It had become very decayed. It was very impaired. Well, Herod's temple was really a massive rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple. So both are called the second temple. That was the second temple period by Judaism. All right, this rebuilt second temple is the one under discussion here in Matthew 24. And it was called Herod's temple. Herod the Great came to power in 37 B.C., And he determined that he would please his Jewish subjects and he'd show his style of kingship to the Romans by making Jerusalem temple bigger and better than it had ever been. His most notable contribution was the magnificent stonework of the temple platform, which was greatly enlarged. In other words, he just expanded this temple complex, all right? The descriptions in Josephus and in the Mishnah have been fleshed out by recent archaeological discoveries. So they're they're digging this stuff up and they're saying, man, all this stuff they're saying is true. This temple was begun 19 B.C. by Herod the Great, king of Judea, and was completed so as fit for use nine years later, about eight years before Christ. Herod had kept 10,000 workmen employed in building his temple for eight years. That's a big construction project. And then, additions continued to be made to it and continued to increase in splendor and magnificence until about A.D. 64. That's when they finished it. Six years before God destroyed it. Six years. They finally finished it. Amazing, huh? John said in John 2.20, 40 and six years was this temple in building. Now, Christ was then 30 years of age which added to the 16 years occupied in repairing it before his birth, so 46 years. That's what it took to to finish that temple. And the temple, this temple, Herod's temple, surpassed the first two in archaeological splendor. The temple was a source of wonder. The stones themselves of this building were of massive size. The foundation stones were as much as 60 to 67 feet long, seven and a half feet high, nine feet wide. To the Jewish people, there was nothing in the world like this temple. It was erected on Mount Moriah. Now, the space of the summit of the mountain wasn't big enough to hold this. So what they did is they built these massive walls with these stones, and then they filled them in with dirt to expand the plateau on top of this mountain. One of the walls was 600 feet high. You know, you read stories about them trying to throw Yeshua off the temple. 
600 feet high. You throw them off that, you're probably not going to do too good. But they basically, you know, just filled in this gap and made this massive temple. And the ascent of the temple was by high flights of steps. Now, they said the appearance of this temple from the Mount of Olives with its white marble and its decorated plates of silver and gold was breathtaking. I mean, it's white marble. Josephus says that in the rising of the sun, it reflected so strong and dazzling that the eye of the spectator was obliged to turn away. Josephus was a modern, he was a Jew of that contemporary period, he was a historian, he wrote this stuff down. Now to strangers at a distance, he said it appeared like a mountain covered with snow. And were it not decorated with plates of gold, it was ex- where it wasn't decorated with plates of gold, it was extremely white and glistening. So here's this just beautiful, monstrous fortress. And the Lord said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. And they're just like, so they're saying, um, Lord... Look at these stones. How's this going to happen? Rabbinic literature is not only particularly favorable to is not particularly favorable to Herod. I mean, the rabbis they didn't like Herod too much. Nevertheless, concerning his temple, it states, "He who never saw Herod's edifice has never in his life seen a beautiful building." The temple site, that site where that temple was built, is now occupied by what? the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, okay? That's the center of Muslim worship, all right? That is the third holiest place in Islam, after Mecca and Medina, all right? The third holiest place. Now, here's what Christians believe. Christians read about Matthew 24. God's going to destroy the temple. Well, he's got to rebuild it. He already did destroy it, but he's got to rebuild it because he's talking to us. So guess what has to happen? You got to get rid of the Muslims would probably just say, that's fine, you just go ahead and knock our third holiest place down, right? Well, they've got to knock it down, they've got to tear it down, then they've got to build a temple, then it's got to be destroyed. So let me ask you, how is the coming of the Lord near or soon or quickly? We've got a lot of work to do before it's even possible to come. you just got to realize, people, it's happened. It's history. All right? It was this magnificent temple that Yeshua said not one stone will be left upon another. Matthew 24, 2. And don't worry, this is our last verse for today, okay? He answered them, you see all these things? Again, he's talking to the temple. Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Mark says, Yeshua said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon... They're talking, he's talking about their temple. The place where they meet God. The place where they worship God. Luke says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, there's not going to be left a stone. Yeshua predicted that this massive temple would be utterly destroyed in an act of God's judgment. And at the time this was spoken, no... No event could be more improbable than this to the Jewish people. Yet, it's all happened. Exactly as God said it would in AD 70. So why are we looking for something else? God said it would happen in a generation. It happened in a generation, but we're still looking for something else. I'm not, but many people are. After the city was taken, Josephus says that Titus gave orders that the soldiers should dig up even the foundations of the temple and also the city itself. See, there was a lot of gold in that place, and when they burned the city, it melted, so they literally tore up the stones in the foundation to get gold out of it. Not one stone was left upon another. Micah 3.2 says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Their prophets told them this. In the mountain of the house of wooded height. So their prophets told them, but they just couldn't get it, all right? Thomas Newton says this, not leaving one stone upon another is proverbial and hyperbolic way of speaking to denote very exemplary destruction. Yeah, it was destroyed. Luke further expounded on this idea in Luke 19, 41-44. He says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you 
the Romans did that, led by Titus, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Now, we see here the reason for this destruction. He says, you didn't know the time of your visitation. They, their whole Bible, everything they spent their life studying pointed to Christ, and Christ shows up and they didn't get Him. They rejected Him as the Messiah. And because of this, they were judged, and the temple and the city was destroyed just like He said He would. F.F. F. Bruce described the destruction of the city in this way. He says, accordingly, in April of AD 70, Titus invested Jerusalem. As the siege wore on, the horrors of famine and even cannibalism were added to the hazards of war. If you read Josephus' War of the Jews, he talks about what happened during this time. He talks about mothers eating their baby. He talks about people killing each other. He talks about the Jews that did escape from the, from, from the temple grounds. You know, they were wait, the Romans were waiting for them. They would cut them open and take the gold out of their stomachs because they would swallow a bunch of gold before they tried to escape. I mean, it was just an incredible horrible situation. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, when God tells Israel, here's the blessings and cursings. If you obey me, here's what I'm going to do. If you disobey me, here's what you get. And you see those judgments in AD 70 coming upon them. He pronounced doom on the temple because the true center of the relation between God and man had shifted from the temple to Yeshua. In chapter 23, Yeshua has already insisted that what Israel does with him, not the temple, determines the fate of the Israelites. Yeshua taught the same idea in John chapter 4. He says, our fathers, this is the Samaritan woman talking to Yeshua, she says, our father worship in this mountain, and you say, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Well, Yeshua said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Now the you here is plural, meaning you Samaritans. You worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Now, that's an amazing thing for a Jew to hear. The day's coming, he says, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the place where the temple of God is, and won't be the center of worship anymore. Because he had already said that he himself was the new temple in John chapter 2. The new meeting place with Yahweh. So if they wanted to get together with God, guess what they do? They go to the temple. They take a sacrifice. They say, God, you know, hope everything's okay here. I want to appease you before I come into your presence. We want to meet with God. 24-7 we can do it because Yeshua is the new temple. He's the meeting place with God and man. The temple was about to pass away. And what would be its, its place? A new mountain, a new city, a new building? No, a person, the Son of God. For salvation is from the Jews, he says, but the hour is coming and now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, the Greek text has one preposition in that governs both nouns, spirit and truth. And linked by the conjunction and. This means that Yeshua was describing one characteristic with two nouns, not two separate characteristics of worship. We could translate the phrase the spirit of truth. Generally speaking, Judaism was a worship of the letter, as Paul points out in the Corinthians, not of the spirit. So Yeshua is saying, there's no more temples. There's no more places of worship where God is to be sought and God is to be found. There's no more priesthood. There's no priesthood today. Why? Why is there no priesthood today? What do you need to be a priest? Genealogy. You need the genealogy to prove you're from the right lineage. Guess what happened to all the genealogical records? They were destroyed in AD 70. So no one can be a priest because you have to have a record. All right? So there's no more priests. There's no more altars. There's no more sacrifices. Like I said, the Jews haven't sacrificed since AD 70. Ask them why. The center of their worship was sacrifice. Every feast day, they sacrifice animal after animal after animal. The Day of Atonement, sacrificing animals. Why? To show that they needed that, and they pointed to the Lamb of God. There's no more vestments. There's no more incense, people. No more lighting candles. All that goes with that system. 
And you know what's really sad? Much of what we see going on in the church today is carried over from the Old Covenant. It's just carried over from what God destroyed and God said, I'm done with. They, they're doing it today. In, old, in the Old Covenant, there was a separate priestly class. Well, guess what today? We got clergy. We got, they're separate from the people. They have official titles. Official authority. No, they don't. There's no priesthood today. In the Old Covenant, the priests wore particular garments. Does that happen today? Oh yeah, we got... You wear your collars or your robes or do whatever to say, I'm different, I stand out, I'm above you all. That's a carryover, people, from Judaism. In the Old Covenant, they had an earthly sanctuary. And what do we call our buildings? The sanctuary. I hate that when people say that. Well, we have to meet in the sanctuary. You know why I hate that? I'm the sanctuary. I'm the dwelling place of God. You're the dwelling place of God. Okay? Not a building. Not a building. You know, the Bible never calls a building the church. We're the church. We go to a building to meet, but we're the church. Many people today associate worship primarily with going to a building, just like the Jews did with going to the temple. Yeshua clarified that true worship transcends any particular time or place. Isn't that cool? You don't have to, oh, I really want to worship God. I can't wait for Sunday. No. You can worship Him anywhere, anytime. You know what I find? Anytime I go off to the ocean or the woods, I'm worshiping because I'm like, this is incredible. When I see what God has made, you get away from man-made stuff and you just get out there with nature and it's like, Lord, you're incredible. All these beautiful things you made. You can worship. It's not a place. You can worship God 24-7. Anytime, place. That's pretty cool. No more buildings. No more priesthood. None of that stuff. Look at Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come. That law, all that things people are trying to hang on to today, God says it was a shadow. What do we know about it? If you see a shadow, what do you know? There's a reality casting that shadow, right? You can't have a shadow if you don't have a reality. Well, but you, know, you don't interact with the shadow. Okay? You've got to act with what's casting the shadow. The law was a shadow instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, the law was just a shadow of good things. He says good things to come. That's the word mellow. It means about to come. Very soon, about to come. The good things were the spiritual things of the gospel. It had been prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and that God would raise a spiritual temple, the church, Christ's body. The fleshly, earthly tabernacle was a shadow and God destroyed it in AD 70. He made it very clear that Judaism was done. He wiped it out. We live now in a spiritual kingdom with a spiritual tabernacle, we worship God in spirit and in reality. No more of that fleshly worship. All right, with that as a background in mind, in our next study, whenever it comes up, we're going to be looking at the disciples' question. Their question was, when? Okay, you're going to destroy this temple? It's going to all be... When, Lord? When will this happen? That's where everybody messes up. Because most people think when, and they're still looking forward in the future. He tells them real clearly when, and we'll see that whenever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we see in Matthew's gospel, Lord, of written to your people, Israel, telling them that you are done with them, you're going to judge them, you're going to put it aside because of their sin. Father, I pray we'd learn from these things, that we would desire, Lord, to walk in holiness with you, desire to obey you in every area because we know of your discipline. Lord, I thank you that we are the people of God, that we worship in spirit and truth. We worship you 24-7. We are your body. Thank you, Father, for the grace that is ours in you. Thank you for the privilege of worship 24-7, wherever, whenever, because you are in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.